Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast, Season 3. I'm Rob Shear, the founder of Comfort Cases and your host. Together, we have made such a difference in the world. We've met with leaders and change makers in the foster care system. We've met with charities and philanthropists, celebrities, authors, and so much more. We'll continue to bring you guests who will share how together, as a community, we can bring about change. Welcome once again to Fostering Change. So here we are, another episode of Fostering Change. And you know, anyone who actually knows me and follows me and, you know, I talk about it all the time, my absolute love for football. And, you know, all most people laugh about it because, you know, having five kids and my husband who grew up in Kansas, we all have a different team. And it's so funny, whether it's my oldest son who we're, we're rooting for the Ravens or my daughter who we root for Dallas um, or my youngest son who is a diehard Vikings fan. You all know that I grew up in the D.C. area, so I absolutely bleed burgundy and gold. That's right. You know, we know that we've had some name changes with our team in D.C., but when my next guest, um, when his book was actually sent to me, I really fell into his book. By the way, I fell into his book not knowing that he actually played for, I want to call them that team, but I will continue to call them, you know, my beloved DC team. But he sent me a book, Identity Shift. I started reading it. I will have to tell you, Anthony, I am absolutely so, so humbled to be talking to you because I walked into this interview um, wanting to know very little about you. And let me tell you the reason why. Because I had gone and heard a couple of things Um, about your life story. And I was like, so parallel of how I lived my life, um, that it was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to ruin it. I got so many questions. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend, Anthony Trucks to Fostering Change. Hey, welcome. Thank you, man. I appreciate the uh, the warm introduction. That's uh, that's a skill set not many have. Most people like read things off the screen. Not that those people aren't good at what they do, but when you have a heart and you can share and speak clearly, it's great. Yeah, you know, I'm just not that guy. I believe that podcasts should be conversations. I agree. Um, that's why we tune into them because we want to be educated and um, we want to have a conversation. And that's exactly what I want you and I to do. Let's start right off. Listen. I did not know that you are a product of the foster care system. Just like oh, you didn't know that. Oh, interesting. I, did, I, I thought you knew that. No, <laughs> I didn't know it until I read your book. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. That is my I'm three years old. I was given away and uh, endured a whole lot of all the, not all, but a very good chunk of the bad stuff you hear about that takes place in foster care. I was privy to that. Uh, in very intimate, real uh, situations. So yeah, most definitely endured uh, that situation. Do you know, Anthony, do you feel that, you know, that has molded you to the person that you are today? Oh yeah, there's this great um, quote and I actually have a painting up here and it says, smooth seas never made skilled sailors. And I've always, uh, for a lot of years of my life, I've always like, man, why me? Why this happen? This is horrible. Why, you know, couldn't it happen to somebody else? Why me? God. And then you get to the point of realizing like, oh, well, at the end of the day, 
that in fact was a great strengthener. There, there's certain aspects to my humanity currently that allow me to have this ability to adapt or to uh, handle things in ways that most people don't have the capacity to. In fact, it's what I do in my work now is help people expand capacity. And, and you have to have pressure as a privilege, we'll call it, to be able to expand. And so, um, yeah, man, there's, uh, there's some cool things that I, I look at in, a, in hindsight. I don't like that it happened, but I appreciate all of it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I live very much like you. Um, I'm the youngest of 10 kids. Um, you know, all growing up from product of the system of a, of a, of a mother who made very bad choices. And, and I always remind people life is about choices and each yeah. and every one of us can sit here and blame the system or we can help change the system. Yeah. And for you, one of the things I remember about your book is that you're, you're in your living room as a young boy, um, you know, playing And you go back, your mom calls you back into, I think, you know, her room. You were living with your stepfather at the time. And life seemed pretty normal for what a kid. And then all of a sudden, just like that, it all changes. Yeah, well, it was actually, it was conquered. I think it was conquered. From what I recall, I remember being in the front of the house and then like the the living room area. And then she called me the back of the house. Now, my stepdad lived with us at the time, and he was the father of my three siblings. And they were all like, I was three, so they were like two, one, and like fairly newborn, kind of speak. And I remember going to the back of the apartment, and my mom's there crying, and there's a strange woman who, you know, later on, find out, say, a social worker. And we all got packed into a car and shipped off. So that is quite literally my first memory of life. It's not the best. It's uh, it's kind of a sucky one because, you know, it's it's this whole weird separation and anxiety. So my life, from what I remember, started in the kind of like that weird little abyss. Yeah. And and the fact is, you and your siblings, you were all split up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at first we weren't. At first we were in pairs. I have a younger brother. So me and my brother were together. And my sisters were together for the first home. And then at some point we went back for a small stint. Don't recall why or what took place. Uh, but then, yes, the next like kind of outing, we'll call it, we were all placed in different homes and, and we're in different homes the rest of the time. You know, um, I, I'm a, a dad who I remind people all the time, I am white and I am privileged because of my skin color. And I am raising four of the most beautiful children of color. And when I was reading about the fact that you were raised in a white home, you know, I always, as that, that, that parent, I always have had this guilt. Do you feel that there are times that your foster parents, and again, I love the fact that you seem to have a really great relationship and they ended up adopting you and that became your bed. And I, let me tell you, I read that sentence. I can't tell you how many times because I remember, I remember, see, I was a kid at 18. I became homeless. I Mm. aged out of the system, so I didn't have permanency, but I remember my very first apartment and I remember that was like, I got, that was my bed. Like yeah. I knew that I was going to go to bed there at night and I was going to wake up there in the morning and no one was going to ever remove me. And you wrote about that. But the thing that I thought about is being raised by um, white parents and a house full of other children that didn't look like you. Yeah. How was that? That's different, man. <laughs> it's obviously a, a different. And to top it all off, we were really poor. We didn't have uh, anything. So it was like, so not only do I have this weird, you know, we'll call it separation from society, because in my area, it wasn't very diverse. So I was the only person that looked like me in my elementary school, only person in my family, the only foster kid in the family also. So 
it was just me. And then you pair that with being kind of like the social outcast of like, we don't have money. So we don't go places, don't do stuff, can't play sports. And so it was, uh, it was a lot, man, but we, we did have this, you know, bonding. Like we were always just able to kind of connect and we went camping and we took little trips. And so there was love in the household. Uh, and it was a dynamic where you go somewhere. And at one point there were eight of us, six kids, my two parents and go to restaurants, table for seven, like not a little black kids with us too. You know, like that was always this little thing. And so there was always a dynamic of feeling like I didn't belong, feeling like it wasn't my place, so to speak, but it was never from the family. It was always accepted inside of our home, right? But going outside, it wasn't always accepted that I was accepted by them. Did you feel like your family did enough to, to bring in what I, what I say to my children is their element of their being, you know, um, and that was something that's always been very important for Reese and I. Um, and I've seen other, you know, foster parents and kid people who have adopted and it's, it's like, well, we just don't talk about it. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's like that one person who walks up to me one time and said, oh my God, your kids are absolutely beautiful. I don't see any color. And I was like, well, then you don't see my four black kids standing here. You yeah. know, it's that, did you feel that they've educated themselves enough? Because back in the day, um, and, and, you know, that was just something people just didn't talk about when it came to race. No, it was never a conversation at that level. And it never was in the household. That, but it doesn't mean I didn't have black moments. Like, we'll call it, uh, you know, those situations arose. At school, I had these little twin kids, these little white kids that would always call me racial slurs for, I don't know what reason. I used to beat them up all the time and they just kept coming. It was the weirdest thing. I got in a lot of fights. And and the thing was, is where the conversation arose was more of like, there was levity brought into it. And it was more of a discussion on they're just bad people. You know, it's like, you can't think all people are like that. These little kids come from a broken home. They're probably got some things going on. And the, the discussion happened in those moments, but it wasn't something where, you know, like there's that show, This Is Us, which is a great show. And, you know, there's like the desire to kind of bring their son around more black people. Like that wasn't ever the thing we did, but there was never a thought of like, we don't see color. They saw me, there were jokes in the house, but that was the thing, the thing that helped me get through it was comedy. Like I actually thoroughly enjoy comedy to this day because it has discussions with lightness to the heart, but it talks about some dark or hard kind of things. And so in my household, that was brought up. When those moments happened, nobody shied away from it. My mom didn't want to, you know, push that aside. We discussed it. There were tears. There were hard moments, right? But we worked through them and we bonded. And, and my mom was never one that would go uh, to the realm of like, I, I, I feel you. She was very aware. She didn't know. She was very clear. She didn't know. But to there to support me. And so that, that simple thing was big. And I think it's unique because in foster care, it's what you're seeking. You're seeking acceptance and for someone to just care. And so that provided oddly a dynamic for me to get that caring that I desired. Yeah, it's that unconditional love that we seem to truly, truly want. You know, in your book, you know, Identity Shift, I can really see, you know, where that shift took place for you, by the way. And yeah. one of the things that, that you know, you're 14 years old and you finally get to go stand in front of a judge and you finally get to say to a judge, I don't want to be with my biological mother, you yeah. know, um, you know, one of the things that I've said throughout the years is that I feel that too many times, um, and I'm all about reunification, and I do not believe foster care is the answer for, for our system. But what I, what I do think should happen is children need to stop sitting on the sidelines and wait for adults to be adulting, you know, and the fact that eight years have passed in your life. 
And by the way, at 14, um, probably one of the hardest years to have a child get adopted. This is going to tell you. You know, you you know, as well as I do, it's that moment where you went from this cute little boy to a scary black boy. And, and that's how people really look at it. And, and I've seen it throughout our nation and it saddens me. I look at my boys and I'm thinking, they're always cute. You know, my, my, my baby, you know, my 13 year old, my 15 year old. Um, but, but I know how that difficult age for adoption and here you oh, really are. Is, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, the thing is I, I got there at six. So they got me when I was a little, like a cute little boy, we'll call it. And I grew, but I was at that family. I was given away at three, was in five homes before the age of six. At six, landed in the sixth house, so which is my current family now. And and so I, I was essentially for eight years raised by this family. And they did get to know me, mold me, shape me, figure me out before I was at that level. But even then, at 14, I was a crazy little kid still. I wasn't like this walk in the park. I was... I was always getting into stuff, man. It was it's quite literally a, a crazy roller coaster of a ride for my youth. And and I love the fact that, you know, you, you you talk about your family because it is that unconditional love. I lived in a house at the same time for a long period of time. So I was shocked when I turned 18 and they said goodbye because yeah, my little they're not brother. getting a check anymore. Yeah. Um, and I because I was like, what's going on? My family. Yeah, my little brother had that happen. His family up and moved. He lived in Delhi, California which is by Modesto and it's like the San Francisco Bay area, but way inland. And then he turned 18 and they all shipped off to New Mexico. I don't think they even gave him their address. He just, just, they just disappeared on him. And so he was literally stuck. And I was in college at the time. He's just stuck. And, uh, and he bounced around, ended up in some bad situations. Now he's doing better. He's in, uh, I think he's in, I want to say Texas, El Paso, yeah. somewhere in Texas doing better, but still it's, it's tough. That does happen. I, I have watched it firsthand unfold. Do you, do you have any, um, you know, for me, being the youngest of 10, um, most of my brothers and sisters, by the way, have fallen to the wayside. They they are the statistics that we see today, drug overdose, um, yeah. teenage pregnancy. Um, I have a brother, you know, who's serving prison time. Um, it's the typical stories. Yeah. For me, I actually made it. Um, I graduated from high school. I went in the military. I became a very successful businessman. But I will tell you that there are moments at night where I lie there and I feel some guilt. Oh, yeah. Um, when I think about my siblings. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I have guilt from many areas, man. But, you know, there there is the part with my siblings where you have that, like, I wish I could do more for them. The good thing is my my siblings went to decent homes, right? So my youngest sister, she went to a home and took care of her as a baby and she went to college. My um, sister right below me, she actually went to college. She's now married out in Minnesota. My brother's kind of more the nomadic guy, but we've seen him recently. He's doing well. So I don't have that much. The odd part is for my current, like my adoptive family, there's some things going on that I, I wish were different. But no matter what it is, there's always this stage of like, I have created a really cool life, right? I got to go do college football. I got to go play in the NFL. I got to, you know, create my own life, my own business, my own family. And there are always those areas where I'm like, man, I wish I could give more of this to people. But I, I did realize at a certain point that that's, uh, it's not going to serve me well. And the best way for me to support these individuals in the way that they really need is to find a way to teach them to create for themselves. And so while I'm not guilty for having things, I'm guilty for not teaching them the ways to have and create things. And, and in that manner, it becomes like tough love a lot of the time when they ask for stuff or somebody needs some things, whatever it is. I'm like, I can't give it to you, but I will show you how to create it for yourself. And in that manner, sometimes they want it and sometimes they don't. And if they don't want it, it is not my job 
to water the seed. I can plant the seed, which I do, but my job may not be to water it. I'll plant it if you want it watered, great. But if not, I can't feel bad for you not wanting to have that thing plant and grow into something amazing. Wow, I love that. Plant the seed, but you don't water. Hey, listen up, everybody. The fact is, the book is Identity Shift. I am telling you, you all know me. I am reading book after book after book. And it's, you know, this one, I, um, this one will be on my shelf. Um, and I will be on my shelf because I think there's so many things in this book that we can refer back to within our lives of where we need to make that shift. And I will tell you something, Anthony, I actually had a meeting this morning with part of my team and there was a part of your book that came into my mind um, because I do truly believe that there is never a time in someone's life that you cannot make a shift. Um, and why do you make that shift? Listen, we're going to be right back again. This is Anthony Trucks. His book is Identity Shift, and we'll be right back. This episode of Fostering Change is sponsored by Comfort Cases, a national nonprofit that inspires our communities to bring hope and dignity to our youth that are in foster care. For just $10 a month, you can support the Comfort Case mission and help us eliminate trash bags for kids who are entering foster care. For every $10 that you give, Comfort Cases will give a Comfort XL to a child entering the system. Be part of the change. Visit comfortcases.org. What an amazing conversation we've started. You know, the fact that I feel that whenever you pick up a book, um, the one thing that I always hope it does is that it educates your mind. But then I also hope that once you've educated your mind, that you've loved it so much that you pass the book on. You know, I'm really asking all of you, um, you know, to go on to Anthony's website, purchase this book. This is something... It's helped me. And by the way, 55, I, I'm always that guy who's like, oh, I know I can be some help here, some help there. You know, we touched on the guilt part of it, Anthony, you know, and I still, as I was saying, you know, I feel a little bit of that guilt identity, that, yeah. you know, that. Yeah. But the thing that I, I, I took away from what you said is that you can plant that seed, but it's up to someone else to actually water it. Yeah. 100%. You know, I mean, that is, that to me is something, you know, I, I take a little bit from every one of our, our podcasts, but that is something I'm not going to ever forget. You can plant that seed, but it's up to, up to yourself, whether or not you want to water it. You know, yeah. being, being a kid, like I said, grew up in the system. You and I just during the break talked about, we both are trash bag kids and, um, you know, remember those days of those black trash bags. Did you always know that college was the next step for you? Oh, no. <laughs> it was never a next step, man. That's, uh, yeah, they're never a next step. You look crazy, the crazy part is people ask, did you always, you know, have this dream of playing in the NFL? And I'm like, bro, I just wanted to have a house. <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't this perspective of anything beyond. In fact, when I was with, you know, that family, again, we were really poor. I'm the only one of all six kids to graduate from the high school with a diploma, not continuation or GED. And so for the foster kid to do it, that's definitely not the statistics. Yeah, no one especially in- when you look at the fact that only 54% of kids in foster care actually graduate from high school. And yeah. if you were one of those kids and here you yeah. had five other biological, you know, siblings and, and for, for the birth parents and they didn't even grow. That's, that's wild. 
Yeah. I mean, they're all doing different things in different good and not so good ways, right? Really? I need statistics. But the idea was that, yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. In fact, my mom at one point, because my mom was diagnosed with MS, my adoptive mom, and and she had literally told me, like, if you don't get a scholarship, like you're not going to college. Like we can't even afford the junior college. And we couldn't. Like I had, I mean, I had a little job. I was working for my grandma at, at the time, my mom's mom as a janitor. So I was making enough to like pay for my little car and like little things. But the reality was that was not in the cards college-wise. But there was this weird uh this football thing that crept in. And so I think what happened was when football crept in, and I literally say crept in, I had this weird desire to do it. I was really bad at it, then got ridiculously good at it because I had this this itch to be to be able to do something that gave me a sense of self-worth. And I, I don't know if I could have articulated it like that back then, but I was like, I like this. Uh, I'm going to try to be good at this so I can feel good about me. And it became part of who I was, and that provided the opportunity. But that opportunity was completely by accident. I didn't even try. I wasn't trying to be good in high school football to get a scholarship. I was trying to be good in high school football to like the man in the mirror. Wow, to like the man in the mirror. And then you go on, you go, you go to college. Um, you you not only play for my team, by the way, but you play for the Buccaneers, you play for the Steelers. And when you got hurt playing for the Steelers and you know, game's over. Um, was it at that moment? And by the way, I have to ask you, did you you, you and your wife were already together at that point? We were high school sweethearts. Yeah, we got married oh right before God. high school, right before college started. We were actually, what are you uh, doing, uh, like writing the never-ending storybook? I mean, you had yeah. high school sweethearts. You got three kids. I was um, a homecoming king too, and she was uh, the cutest couple, really cutest couple in the yearbook, and she was senior athlete of the year. We got a bunch of weird stuff that happens in our life. Yeah, crazy. That is like so. Now you're a dad. You know, you've been a dad for a while. You were telling me you one of your your kids is actually you know college bound. Um, yeah. For, for me, I know being a dad, you know, no matter how much I did career wise, that being a dad was that moment of like I won the lottery. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was cool. I mean, it, the thing is, is I had my son. I found out my wife uh, at the time, fiance was pregnant when we were 19. And I was a sophomore, like beginning of sophomore year in college. So it wasn't the most ideal time. But it's funny you say that, that lottery thing. When I, I remember where I was standing, we had this locker room with this big lift up door, but one small door to the side. I was about to start a workout. So I was in my workout clothes at the facility for University of Oregon. And I was halfway in the door, halfway out because I got better service that way. She says, hey, I'm pregnant. And the phone went quiet for a moment, but I got this rush of awesome. And it was, it was something where I just, I was like, I, I don't know. I'd always yearned to be a dad because I wanted to give back to a kid in a way that wasn't given to me. So like I never, ever, and I'm not even a single ounce I've ever had that I don't want a kid feeling. Like it was just this like, oh yeah, like let's do it. And so I'm in college, full-time student, full-time athlete. She's a full-time student as well. And we got a baby coming. I mean, most kids can't take care of a Tamagotchi back then. And we got a real human coming to our life, you know? And it was the same thing for me. I just, I remember, it's funny that we're having this conversation. I wrote this thing called a legacy letter for my children. And it's a, a buddy of mine, Blake Brewer, does this thing called legacy letters. It's legacy letter challenge for dads. And I just finished my oldest son's today and sent it to him today. And I talk about how like the moment I first saw his face and it was just this overwhelming like joy, like this is my guy, this is my human, this is my blood and he's never going to be in foster care. He's not going to have to endure experience and that kind of stuff. Like I'm going to be locked in. And so, yeah, the fatherhood thing for me has always been the coolest experience. 
Wow. Yeah. That, I have to agree with you on that. I mean, I, I, you know, I have four boys and one girl, by the way, and my one girl, um, I, I remind her all the time that she is my princess and I am raising her to be the queen that I know she's going to be one day. Because she always asks my husband and I, if we're going to adopt another kid and if we can, it's going to be a girl. And I was like, first of all, I think we're done. Five is it. But, you know, I didn't. Hey, let me tell you, my son, Alex, 18 years old, when I was giving a speech and I met him at a school, kid in, kid in the system, you know, yeah. and was going down that hill where it was like, this was his opportunity. And I now look at him now and he's 21. He's a sophomore in college. And, you know, what made you decide to write your book? Uh, which one? The first is the first one's an autobiography. That was right. an accident. They're both accidental books, man, to be honest. The, the first one was for me to have like a catharsis and get it out. So I wrote it in seven days, tucked in a weird little hotel room in, in Sparks, Nevada. The second one, which we're talking about identity shift now, that was one where and the work I do is an identity. And I think it ties to my life in really intricate, weird, you know, synchronous ways because of not knowing who I was and the white family and black kid and the sports, all these different things. And then it got to the point where I was like, I actually asked myself, like, what would I want someone to understand about identity and the way that I've studied it? How would I tie stories into this? And what would be a teachable way to make someone go, oh, I get it. And then be able to take this, this skill set in and apply it to their life. Because we've all made identity shifts, but we just do it kind of on accident. And I, I look at it more of like capacity, right? Our, our ability to have success is, do I have the capacity? Certain identities have the capacity for hardship, have the capacity for compassion, for forgiveness, for hard work, for focus, for discipline. It's just certain capacity. If you don't have it, you could have all these big goals and a great schedule to do it, but you could show up and go, I can't do it. And you can't actually get it done. So it's like, well, what, how do I develop the skill? And that's something I went back and looked at my life and research. And I was just making notes of how it would be done and what the process would look like, understanding identity. How do I modify? And then I was talking to a guy one day. He's like, hey, I got a, I got a publisher that you should talk to because this might be a book. And I got, oh, I'll talk to him. So I talked to him and he's like, what do you got? And I show him these notes on Evernote, three full pages of concepts, stories, and then like teachable stuff I would put in. And he's like, I don't know why the, you haven't written these. Like, we have authors that have been signed, right? That don't have any anywhere near this progression of a book being written. He's like, you need to just write it. So I did, I sat down and it was 5,000 words per chapter and it was about 10 chapters uh, in total, not like a prologue and an epilogue. And I wrote it. And I think all in totality, it was something like 40 hours of writing and I would just chunk it up by day and got it done and rolled it out. And that's what you have in your hands now. So it wasn't something where I was like, I'm, I'm setting out to write a book. It was right. literally like this, the book needs to come out because it's already written. So, you know, I love, by the way, I absolutely love that because I'm going to tell you, I, I, I tell people all the time when I wrote my, um, my memoir, um, it was probably one of the hardest things I ever did. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the second hardest thing I ever did was when, when Simon Schuster came to me and told me that I was doing the audiobook. And God, the audiobook's um, difficult. I did that too. <laughs> oh, having to sit in that, that fishbowl and, you know, let me tell you, I went to therapy twice a week during that time. So oh, I, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I just did in the closet. <laughs> well, I, have a, I have a weird thick skin, man. I think football was a phenomenal tool for me with foster care. I have this weird, um, almost impenetrable wall for the most part of the ability for things to affect me at that level. I, I think therapy as a kid was one part, like I actually did do therapy as a kid. The other therapy was my high school, college and NFL coaches yelling at me, like in navigating that. 
Because at this point, uh, I do get that. I, it sucked having to sit there and just talk and read and feel. Yeah. But then I don't know what it was. I had natural practices that I applied in my life now that allow me to move through it well. I'm not saying I'm perfect. By all means, I'm sure if I sat down with someone, they'd show me all the little broken pieces I'm unaware of. But I definitely recall like it being a, a, as a hall to get that audio book recorded. You know, Anthony, if you could go back to that 14-year-old boy, you know, and knowing what you know right now and, and both books and, you know, NFL player, what would you said to him? Uh, I'm going to preface that and then answer that. So I'm preface it with this conversation of, that I had in my own head when I was in the NFL. There is this, uh, there's this weird little monster that climbs on our back when we've been in that, that system. And this, the, the monster is, I don't deserve. That was my monster. And so it was weird why I played in the NFL. There's multiple times where I was just sitting there, like walking on the field going, I don't belong here. Like I'm, I'm signed to a team. They, they're, you know, but I, I don't belong here. And that energy for sure came through. And I wish I could go back and switch that out. I think I would have had a longer, more prosperous career if I had a different fluid energy in me. And when I take it all the way back to 14, I would have essentially told myself, like, you deserve everything you want. That's what I would have went and told that guy because he didn't figure that out till he was in his early 30s. And, and when he did, the game changed. Life turned into a, what you see now from a really dark moment. But I, I got to that moment because for some reason, I felt like even though I worked incredibly hard for things, I mean, getting into college is hard. The NFL, 10,000 people enter the draft each year. And I got a couple of years under my belt before I got hurt. Like that's not normal. Humanity-wise, statistically not normal. Yet in those moments, I told myself I didn't deserve it. I'd earned it, but I didn't deserve it. And it was only because... Going back, I felt like I didn't belong because my mom in her action said, you don't matter. So if I can go back to that guy, I'd let him know, like, you deserve everything you want, my man. Wow. You know what? Um, you and I are cut out of the same cloth, my friend, because I say quite often the same thing. If I could go back to that 12-year-old little boy who walked up the first house with my first trash bag, um, mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, I deserve where I'm at today. And it, I like yeah. you, I was in my 30s before that even hit. Listen, friends, I really, really want you to do me a big favor. I know every week I talk to you about some great humans because each and every one of us have an opportunity to be a good human. But Anthony, you are doing that, okay? So here's the book. You know, I want you all to get out there, read it, send me an email at fosteringchange@comfortcases.org. Um, I know you're going to love it as much as I love it. Um, and Anthony, it has just been such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing, because sometimes I think that it's very hard for people that um, are like you and I, and, you know, to be able to share how we got to where we are. But what I hope happens is all of the the young, you know, boys and girls who listen to my podcast, who are aging out of the system, have to know just exactly what Anthony says. You deserve it. Take care, everyone. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for listening or watching the latest episode of Fostering Change. All of us on our team hope that you've learned something new today and have been inspired to be a good human. Now, just a reminder that you can always find Fostering Change on your favorite channels on Google, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and others including, of course, comfortcases.org. I want to give a big thank you to all of you for joining us each and every week. 
And a reminder that if you have a suggestion for a guest, or maybe you might have a question about today's podcast, or are interested in becoming a sponsor of Fostering Change, please don't hesitate to email me personally at fosteringchange@comfortcases.org. Now, that's it for now. Thanks again, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Take care.